Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. We are concluding the book of Leviticus. From 25 through the end of the book, is it Zadat, Zadok, Benishadak? Be strong, be strong, be strengthened. The conclusion of the book of Leviticus. That is our Torah portion we're discussing today. I have a few things I have to get to share some sketch out drawings and details to share with you. Before I get into my spiel, what I want to talk about. Notes the other here. Yes, we. Have, oh, yes, Jeff pointed out in the chat. We have previous previous records of both parashas uh, that we've done in the past that are on our webpage. You're welcome to assess them. Each time we 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 approach this, um, we approach it. We discuss or highlight different components of it. Yes, uh, hello.info slash p thirty two dash thirty three. Right. So that's the the address. That's the, 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 yeah, that matches the. Uh, Leviticus 25 through 27. If there's a question regarding this Torah portion first, we can discuss before we go into my my spiel. My spiel shouldn't take too long. Oh, yes, Larry, your hand is up. Go ahead. I've go been ahead thinking about this Jubilee year. Yes. You know, there's a lot of things that we can't do because the temple doesn't exist, but there's a, also a bunch of things that we don't know how to do, even though we don't need a temple for that. And that's right. kind of one of them. So. Right, so the jubilee because actually that that'll, that'll be our our introductory topic. Actually, you bring that up. That's where we start out a bit. So you will note that there are certain rules and instructions given regarding our Torah portions, what we cover, that must be done in the land of Israel. It has been a particular way, or it can't be done at all. Um, but there's some that are done regardless of where you're at, whether land, whatever nation you you live in. Uh, Jeff pointed out last week there are obvious parallels between uh, the Jubilee cycle, the se- sequence of counting the whole seven sets of seven years um, and then the 50th year. That obviously is a seven to seven years. They're, they're, they're clear parallels. So in the case of a Jubilee year, you have, uh, sorry, Jubilee in general, the counting cycle. Jeff pointed out last week that it was quite obvious uh, that we, it's, always not, it's obviously not to not forget that uh, the Shabbat, as we know, already has uh, seven days. And every seventh day, of course, is a Shabbat day of rest, a day which we do not work, or the we call the Shabbat. So the Shabbat correlates to the seven-day period, or the week, sorry, the Shabbat every seven days. This is obviously a similar counting cycle. There's the Shemitah cycle, the Shemitah. I'm going to misspell, misspell this. Shemitah. Because I'm not, it's hard to spelling a transliterated word. Anyway, Shemitah is a seven, seven-year cycle. And these are obviously connected. The seven days correlate to uh, one week. Seven years correlates to one Shemitah, a sabbatical, the, uh, which is the English uh, the translation to English is sabbatical. So these are, these are obviously connected. They're counted very similarly. Just like on the Shabbat, you do not work on the Shabbat, the, the seventh day. You don't gain, you take your day of rest. Well, the Shemitah cycle the same way. You don't gain or take your rest. Uh, so you don't work on, on, on the Shemitah cycle either. And so the same, the same process is, is, is done for the same similar uh, 
some example. We also have, of course, the uh, seven weeks that, uh, or according to the Omer, Omer, which is the counting that goes between Passover all the way through to Shavuot. B, ah, misspelled. S H A V U O T. Ah, that's terrible. That's Shavuot. <laughs> yeah, who knew I was Canadian? <laughs> hey, so Shavuot. So that's a seven week, week, week counting. The Shavuot goes seven weeks and it adds one day, which is the 50th day. Now, this obviously is clearly parallel to because many times in the past. Uh, with the seven sets of Shemitah, or seven years, those correlate to the, the, seventh, the seventh set plus one year is Jubilee. Uh, Jubilee. So we have the parallelism of Shavuot to Jubilee as we have parallelism between the Shabbat, the seven-day week, to the Shemitah, the seven-year cycle. So these are obviously connected together. They're counted the same way, the seven weeks, seven sets. The, Sh- the Shavuot has one extra day. Julia has one extra year. These are obviously tied together. They're counted that way on purpose. They're designed to be associated with each other when you're addressing or talking about this particular topic. So when you're assessing the purpose between stuff, Make sure we understand that these are supposed to be parallels. We should think of them the same way. When I think of Shabbat, my day of rest, I should be thinking the Shemitah as my year of rest. I associate them equally in their value and purpose. When I think of Shavuot, the day of the Ten Commandments being given, the instructions for God of how to live, I should also think of the year Jubilee, how to be free and how to live. Because the Shavuot and Jubilee are tied together. I should do consider them or view them the same way. If I disobey Shavuot, meaning disobey the commandments of God, I'm going to be re- receive the disobeyment for Jubilee. It's the same principle. The Jubilee course is recorded in, in, in chapter 26, all disagreements and disobeyments for that, that cycle. So these are important things to associate and it's also important as the counting cycle works to not forget the counting the Omer, the seven weeks of the counting Omer is also be thought of or viewed the same way as the seven sets of the Shemitah counting cycle, seven year sets. Uh, the, the, so you view the same way. If I ignore the seven weeks of the Omer, I'm ignoring the seven years of the Shemitah, the seven sets of years of Shemitah as well. And this seven years of Shemitah, which chapter 26 points out, has a consequence when you ignore them, which again, we'll discuss, discuss that chapter 26 which implies, because I have to view these the same way as those, the Shemitah the same way as the Omer, if I ignore the Omer, there's a consequence with it associated or similar to the consequence with ignoring the Shemitah. If I ignore Jubilee, I'm also ignoring Shavuot, the Ten Commandments. So these are, these are, these are attached to get together, supposed to be paralleled and viewed as equals to each other. When we're going through them, we're discussing Shemitah or Shabbat, Think of them the same way. So the Omer or the Shemitah, the, Shemitah, the seven sets of Shemitah, think of them the same way. Discussing Shavuot or Jubilee, think of them the same way. 
God is wanting us to parallel our thought process. So he parallels the counting cycle. Does that make sense thus far? Hopefully it does. So this is how we're going to view our, our world, our viewpoint today in this context of these particular uh, holiday cycles or how they're counted. To go switch back to the camera again. Oh, yes. Larry, your hands up again. Uh, you're muted. I can't hear you. Sorry. Uh, unmute yourself. Oh, the Shemitah, is that the uh, seven years for the leaving this land fallow? Correct. Correct. That is the seventh year. The Shemitah, seventh, the seventh year cycle is the seventh year in particular, which we want to focus on. That seventh year uh, is the, the land rest. That's yeah, that's point. I guess what I really meant. I said I said Jubilee, but I was thinking about that seventh year. Oh, okay. So the Jubilee has its the fifteenth year, which is an additional type of rest, which has more stuff put on it in addition to the Shemitah cycle that is done the year prior to, because it's every seventh year. So Jubilee has additional information. So yes, that that is the Shemitah cycle is in particular. It's a cycle of seven years, but the Shemitah itself lands on the seventh year. Just like the Shabbat is a cycle of seven days, but the Shabbat itself lands on the seventh day. So that's the, the Shemitah cycle is a seven-year cycle. This, of course, as most of you are aware of, uh, takes place and manifests itself within, uh, uh, was it uh, uh, Elijah does, or Elisha, I think it's Elisha. His cycle, which this, 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 this ex- experience takes place, and the correction that goes with it, with the lack of following a Shemitah, and that, of course, the sequence of Shemitah is forgotten over many, 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 many generations, is fulfilled in uh, uh, Jeremiah. We might get to those today. I'm not positive, so I, I can't say for certain. That's right, the webcam we had? Shoot. Looks like soft, quick buttons for these toggling between one and the other. I'm not sure to do that. Okay, let's move forward a little bit. So, um, as we mentioned before, there are certain things that uh, take place regardless of where you live, and some things take place when and where you live. So, for example, uh, the Holy Day cycle system, in particular the Holy Days, as well as Shabbat, they are applicable regardless of where you live. I mean, there are things that, that don't go away just because I moved from one city to the next city, I changed houses. It doesn't matter which house you live in, which city you live in, what nation you live in. The Shabbat is always the same. It, it is a never-ending, continuous cycle. So after Shabbat, that, 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 that cycle doesn't end. The Shavuot cycle also is at a point in time, it doesn't end. So these things don't end just because I live in one town or I live in the other town. They're always the same thing. My Shabbat observance is regardless of where I live or even when I live. If I happen to live a thousand years ago versus a thousand years from now, it doesn't make any difference. Those things don't change with time. The Shemitah cycle is also partially, I say partially, it may or may not observe. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. So if, back a little bit, if a Shabbat is declared, meaning it's, it's, we, we know it's Shabbat, we know it's Saturday, we then say, oh yeah, okay, it's Saturday. It, it holds true. If a Shabbat is not declared, it's still Shabbat. It holds true. Whether or not I accept the fact it's a Saturday or not doesn't change the fact that it's still Shabbat. If I think today is Tuesday, then I may think it's Tuesday. It doesn't change the fact that it's actually Shabbat. So just because my understanding of it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't my understanding of it does not alter its existence, it alters its purpose. The cycle of uh, the Shavuot, for example, also the same way. Just because I think Shavuot lands on a Tuesday, Wednesday, a Sunday, a Saturday, doesn't make any difference. It's still Shavuot. It's, whether I think the day is right or wrong 
the event is always the same. It doesn't alter its existence or importance of it. Hold on, man. I've got a message from Jeff. Can you share your second camera while your face is... I have no idea to do that. Maybe. Oh, I'll, think, I'll try that next time. I, I, I was talking back to the next one in, in, in a minute. I'll try to see you in the share screen. Yeah, so, so whether I declare Shavuot or not doesn't change the fact Shavuot still exists. It's still an important thing to occur because, as we know, the Shavuot is associated traditionally, which makes total sense in every way you think about it, um, with the giving of the Ten Commandments. We know they are attached together. So, for example, if I think Shavuot doesn't apply anymore, I could argue the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore. I don't have to you know, believe in just one God. I don't have to be faithful to my spouse. I don't have to not murder or not steal. I can go ahead and murder and steal now. If I think the Shavuot can be discarded, then I can also argue or believe or argue or conceive and live my life that the Ten Commandments are discarded because they are attached together. Shavuot and Ten Commandments are attached together. And on the Ten Commandments, of course, are all the instructions that go with them. It's like, for example, how, what, what is murder? What's not murder? What is sin? What's not stealing? All those things are examined, examined and just talk, talked about in our Torah, the examples of the Ten Commandments of how they're all operated. So the case of Shemitah is supposed to be a declared thing. Every seventh year, it is openly declared. You, have, you, you blast, hey, this is Shemitah. They lead up to it. It's important to understand that you are leading up to it as far as how the Shemitah works. But what if the Shemitah isn't declared? What if no one says this year's Shemitah? Not, not that I would just you know whether it, I can't prove this year happened is or is not. But the point is that what if it's not declared? Then does the Shemitah exist? Is the Shemitah apply? Is it true if it doesn't declare it? Well, we have the answer for that. Fortunately, um, we have that from Jeremiah. So, if we recall, but this the time, the time of Daniel, I don't recall the Shemitah. I didn't write the, write the address down because I'm just going to reference it minor. Is that the people get expelled to the land for seventy years? Because they failed to observe 70 Shemitahs leading up to that time of expulsion. So that's an important thing to remember. That means that, wait a minute, just because I don't declare a Shemitah doesn't mean God isn't counting one. He's still counting regardless of what I do. That tells us by proof of his own actions, as well as the events that took place in Elijah's time, as well as Jeremiah's time. These are proofs. That whether or not I think this year's a Shemitah, or I think next year's Shemitah, or no years are supposed to be Shemitah, no sabbatical years exist or are important to do, that has no bearing on God's counting of them. So regardless of when I think it is or isn't, was declared or not declared, it doesn't matter. So that tells that the Shemitah counting cycle is the same regardless of whether I think it is or think it's not. Regardless of whether I declare it or not, regardless of whether I obey it or not. That's an important thing to think. Whether I obey it or not is no relevance to whether it's true or not. Or whether it's whether God's holding it true to me, holding me responsible for it or not, he's still holding responsibleness on my hand. That's my job. I have to be responsible. So now we have the Shabbat that is, is true regardless of whether I'm there or not and observing it. The Shavuot is true regardless of I'm there or not or, share, or, share, or observing it. The Shemitah is true whether I'm there or not or, 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 or sharing it. Uh, each, each instance, these are all examples of those who, who, who observed, sorry, did not observe, but they, yet they were still responsible for them. Uh, they also have additional information. Uh, well, uh, he has a, 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 there's a quotation there. Thank you. Uh, he, he, uh, Jeff wrote out the quotation. It says that this is from uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20, 21. 
It records those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were service to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had destroyed enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of his desolation, it kept the Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Thank you, Jeff, for finding that scripture because I couldn't, I couldn't remember where it was. I appreciate that. So that is a citation, of course, recorded as far as in Second Chronicles, the number of years, 70 years, correlating to their, to their expulsion time period. Now, he, now, the question is now, what about the Jubilees? Now, Jubilees, of course, are supposed to be declared with the whole trumpet. The whole trumpet every, every 50th year. It's supposed to be blasted out. Well, if Shabbat counted without me observing it or not, and Shavuot counted without me observing it or not, Shemitah's counted whether I observe it or not, is Jubilee counted whether I observe it or not? You know, well, why not? theoretically, it should be. If I know that Shabbat is counted and Shemitah's counted, whether or not I am there to observe or not, I know the seven weeks of the Omer and the seven sets of Shemitah, the seven sets are counted, whether I am observing or not. Shavuot is counted, whether I'm observing or not. Therefore, if I had to think these are the same here, the same here, therefore I must also believe Shavuot and Jubilee are viewed the same, whether I count them and observe them or not. Now, how do I know that's the case? Well, we actually do have evidence for that too. Although it is more modern evidence as opposed to ancient evidence, we still have evidence for it. So in the case, I'll switch pages here. We know by history evidence and historical proof, because it actually happened, we have records of it, that there was a declared, openly declared jubilee, jubilee, in uh, 67 AD. We know what occurred there because they have records of it actually saying, hey, they blasted their trumpets. They, they know this was a correlated year. We don't have records following that again. So we know they recorded this one as a jubilee, for as that's what records claim. Now, it just so happens that we do not have records from this point all the way as far as any recollection. What I, what, by the way, when I say recorded jubilee, that doesn't mean any Tom, Dick, or Harry said today's jubilee. Recorded jubilee meaning the leadership or a nation makes a declaration. So I don't mean just any 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 leader, the leader of a nation. So like for example, the rabbinical leadership or the head rabbis or Sanhedrin, that would be the inclusive of the leadership that would make such a, such a declaration. And this in our Torah portion is supposed to be the priests that make such a declaration. But in, in the time of, of the ending of the first, second temple was being destroyed, I can't say the priests were all that active in making such things. I don't really know. I wasn't there. We have no records past that, but. If I imagine that the, if I, if I had to continue on and consider or think that, well, I was to view Shavuot and Jubilee as similar, that means these events, God must be still counting similarness. He still, he didn't ignore or delete. Well, the ne- only next record that I have found in history, that is, and I, my historical records that I have found, next record Jubilee doesn't happen again, meaning openly declared by a nation until 1867. That's a long time. 1,800 years go by before the next jubilee is declared. And the nation, of course, declares that is obviously, as we already, as already re- re- record, is the Jewish leadership uh, in London. We also have uh, the, the London government, the, 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 uh, the queen. Uh, her, 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 her army did, did so. 
in a case of his name was Charles, oh, I forgot his last name. It's not the W. Charles, uh, I forgot the guy's name. Anyway, so they declare it in 1867 that that was a Jubilee year according to their records. And then, of course, we also have a, a Jubilee that occurred in 1917, which occurred during the First World War when they freed Israel. So Israel, when uh, Britain freed Israel from the Ottoman Empire. And that was done again. They repeated it again. And of course, repeated again, as we all know, we're very familiar with the 1967 war when the trumpets were blown and Israel was, of course, Jerusalem was freed. J-E-R-Jerusalem. I think that's how you pronounce spell Jerusalem. And then, of course, and then obviously we have our own president doing so in uh, 2017. So we have the records of these occurring uh, in these in these cycles. We know these are these are historical events that took place. What we don't know, we don't have records of, is between the last one of 67, between 18, to, to 1867. We have no idea. We have no records of it. But if I view and have to think of the Shavuot and Jubilee as God doesn't neglect them just because I do. Therefore, I have to assume these Jubilee cycles leading up to this point, God didn't neglect them just because I did. He doesn't neglect. He, he, he holds true to his records regardless of whether or not they are observed by man or not observed by man. That's his, his problem is not our observance. That's our problem. His instruction, of course, is to hold true to his instructions because he doesn't change. We do. We're the ones who have the changing problems. Okay, let's move forward here. In, so in the case of the proclaiming the freedom that the whole Jubilee cycle, that's all proclaiming freedom. That, that's what we referred to the 1867 and, 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 and 1917 and 1917 and 2017. Those were all declarations of freedom. They, they blasting out of you are now free return to your homeland, which was done in all of those years. So that's what that is declared. So if it wasn't declared before that, we don't know. We don't know what happened there. But since God didn't neglect it later on in our modern history, I'm suspecting there's a good probability he didn't neglect it in a past history either. So it tells us that jubilees are still held true, whether or not they're declared or not, because God is the one who always does it. But these are also appear to be also events which they are declared on. So we only have records of when they get declared and what happens. So one could argue that you know, maybe God counts them meanwhile or not. We don't really have evidence between 1800 1800s all the way down to the 67, 80, or 800 year there span. We don't have any records of it. So don't know enough details about it, but I think he probably does count them regardless of whether I notice or have records of it or, or not have records. It doesn't really matter. Um, but here's where your kicker comes. Those of you who are interesting or paying attention. Um, to proclaim freedom, to proclaim jubilee, and to return to your ancestral heritage, there are steps that have to take place, which God is solely responsible for. For example, for me to return to an inheritance, the current occupant must give up the inheritance. So the person who currently owns it, currently has it, has to actually give it up. Just for example, as he cites here in uh, chapter 20, uh, 27, I think it was, if a Jew is sold or Israelite is sold to a foreigner who lives in your land, the Jubilee comes if he didn't redeem himself earlier. 
the foreigner must actually give him up. So, okay, here I'm going to release him because it's the law of the land. I'm required to do so. It requires both the giver to give up as well as the recipient to receive. If one fails their job, that's not the problem of the individual who's doing the job correctly. So if I give up my land, but there's no one there to take it, not my problem. I'll just hold it for you until you are there to take it. See, the Jubilee cycle has the requirement of, I can give it up, but if there's no one to give it to, the land is desolate. It's laid waste. It's empty. Nothing happens to it. It's not cared for. Nothing, it winds up being taken over into the wilderness. And that was not God's intent, as far as he points out. This is, I'm, I'm driving the wilderness wild animals away, not trying to convert it over to them. It's simply a temporary giving up, so to speak, of, of, of the land. So it is totally legitimate argument, which I've heard this argument many years ago and still hear it today, that the, that the, that the Jubilee cycle applies to the land of Israel, which I believe it does, and that if the people fail to receive their inheritance back, then it is the responsibility and the failure of the people, not the failure of God. The people fail to give up the land, it's a failure of the people failing to give up, not the failure of God. So regardless of whether you, whether you think Jubilees are accounted for the 1,800 years or not, the responsibility of the individuals are the ones who are re- required to actually carry out the tasks given. Uh, let's see. There's, let's jump down a little bit here uh, regarding the Jubilee cycle in particular for the return of heritage and freedoms and such. When harvesting or when planting, so I'm going to draw a basic, a basic timeline here. Uh, we have uh, year markers. I will list this year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It continues on. So, this timeline I have, it continues on obviously for many years. This correlates to a given span of a few years here. So, in the case of planting, obviously we know that the year begins in the spring. So, spring starts a year, it goes all the way through a time, it ends at the end of winter. And then the second year begins in spring and goes to winter. And get the, the pattern of spring and winter, spring and winter. So the ending of one, it correlates the spring of the next year. Spring, winter, spring, winter, spring. Okay, he's on. Get the idea. So planting for seed crops, for example, things that you would harvest in the spring and summer, frequently, though not exclusively, frequently are planted sometime in the winter before. So when we're focusing on zooming in on this case of, of, of year six, seven, eight, and nine, which is where the Shemitah cycle and Jubilee cycles are, are focused on this area here alone, we have that sometime in the sixth year in particular, I'm going to put a marker right here, a marker right here, the tail end of the sixth year toward, toward uh, fall, we have the declaration. So we declare, declare it usually at, at, at uh, trumpet, or sorry, trumpet, uh, atonement, day of atonement is declared here. So, we're leading into the seventh year. So why does it declare it at Day of Atonement? Simple, for obvious reasons. Because you will then know not to plant your seed because you're not going to harvest it. So leave your land fallow. So you will stop planting to tail in the sixth year. So the seventh year comes, you will not be planting anything. So this correlating of span of time of not planting goes like to the fall of the sixth year all the way through until the eighth year begins. So this span of space here, which correlates to seven years, is actually a hair longer than seven years. 
that shows the, the fall of the sixth year all the way through until the spring of the, of the beginning of the spring of the eighth year. That's where the span, which you're not planting in this, in this zone time period, which is a, basically it's a year plus a few months, about three months or thereabouts. Three, three to four months. It varies a little bit depending on your climate. Um, so that's, that's the planning, but you're not planting stuff. You're not harvesting things this time period. But then the eighth year, you get to start planting again, but you're in the spring. So your grain crops are usually done late, late winter. Won't get they you start planting it. You won't get to plant grain crops until typically in the winter or beginning of the winter of the eighth year. So this mark here, pulls X mark here, which correlates to the, the tail end or the, the the ending of the winter, the eighth year, before you can plant your spring your your grain crops. Grain crops typically aren't harvested in particular till Shavuot, which is about middle or so of the ninth year. Right here, this little circle. So you're going to span basically a year and a half or so, a year and a quarter of no new grain being harvested. So you actually have about just shy of a year and a half of not planting it and about a year and a half before you harvest again. This whole span of time is approximately three years. It's a long time period, isn't it? Long time, but you're not going to be planting those crops. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't confuse what I'm trying to say here. There are grains that can be planted in the spring. We call them rice. <laughs> rice is planted usually in the spring. That's early spring. That, that rice is planted in the spring and then it's harvested the same year. So it's, it's a short-term crop. So in the eighth year, you could plant rice sometime in the mid-spring and you will harvest it that same year before, before summertime, about well, mid-summer or so late summer. So that's a short, sport, short span crop. So you can still get rice. Those of you who live in a rice field and like rice, well, California is big, big, big on rice. So that's, that's a huge thing for our, for our state. But so rice can be done here, but other grain crops, wheat and things like that is your, because Israel, wheat is native to Israel. That, 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 that is the source, all wheat that we know today, wheat and barley starts out in Israel. That is the beginning of where, where it's native to. So they do not have native rice. So their na- native grain, unlike America, wheat is not native to America. We grow a lot of it here. It's not native to here. So Israel, the primary native crops are barley and wheat. And all the wheat varieties, which this includes spelt and includes uh, rye as well, actually. And most, most type of grain. So Barley and wheat varieties are all native to, to, to Israel. Not necessarily the entire Middle East, but Israel in particular. That, that particular spot in Israel, it's native to there. As opposed to rice, because what does rice require? A whole bunch of something called water. <laughs> what does Israel not have? It has no real water. So you don't grow rice in Israel. Uh, so, that, so it doesn't work that way. Anyway, the point is that this span, you have about three years. Hence, the Torah says, when, you, when the people are complaining, well, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? The span from here to here, we're not planting grains and not planting stuff. He says, don't worry about it. I will bless you in the sixth year. You will have grain to last you all the way until the ninth year, which you're going to need. Because the ninth year is when it will, where your next harvesting crop is going to be. So you skip one year of planting, you have three years before you get to get it again of that same wheat crop in particular. The grain, the, 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 the durable crops, those that last a long time. I'm not referring to like, Watermelons and tomatoes. I'm referring to, or, or I'm referring to grain crops that span or can be held over for many years in silos or some kind of a storage system. Uh, fruit crops and such are not are not what he's referring to as far as them lasting for three years. Well, I guess you could, you know, there is canning, but that that, that wasn't. I don't think I was playing for canning stuff and like for bottling things. 
hope that makes sense. Uh, let's see. We'll go back to that that uh, the drawing shortly in a minute when I get to it because there's, there's more stuff to 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 share with you on on the drawing cycle. Let's see, I am. Oh, I have a little bit of time. That's great. Let's move forward here. We got uh, get past the jubilees. I said the Ten Commandments, Shmita's time, and ah, okay. So. Now we go to buying and selling the land, Jubilee cycles. So here's the deal. You and I don't own anything. The hat I have in my head, I don't own it. I'm using it, but I don't own it. The clothing on my shirt, my shirt, yep, I don't own it. I'm using it, but I don't own it. Who owns it? The one who created it. I'm not referring to the sewer. I'm not referring to the seamstress. <laughs> the one who created the fibers that make it happen. That he owns everything. So God is the owner of all our possessions. Whether it's a home, whether it's a land, whether it's food, he owns it all. We are renters. We are always going to be renters. We were born in the land, born in our, from our mother's womb with nothing but our bodies and our skin and you know the organs are put inside of us. He technically owns those too because he can take them away. <laughs> We don't own anything. We are renters. We just rent. It doesn't matter if you pay your property taxes or not. You know you don't own it. Now, by the way, if you don't pay your property taxes, the government will take the rented land you're taking from them. They'll take it away. So be aware of that. Pay your property tax because you're renting for the government too, but you're renting for the, 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 your, the rights to live there. But the point is that you don't own it. Oh, yes, Jeff, your hand's up. Yes, and there there is no heavenly eviction moratorium either. Right. <laughs> right. There is no heavenly eviction moratorium. Correct. When he decides to evict, you get evicted. Now, um, so, so when it comes to land and ownership, hence God pointed out, you don't get to sell my stuff. Okay. This is my house. This is my land. I'm letting you live, not just you personally, you, your children, your grandchildren for generations. I'm letting you live there. You don't get to sell because I'm the one who owns it. You can't sell my stuff. If I go to Jeff's house and borrow his car, I can't drive down the street and sell it. <laughs> it's his car. <laughs> he may not appreciate. I don't think our friendship would, would, would last much longer if this is how I treated him, right? It's, it's, Only if you leave me a bag of cash by the door. <laughs> At least, what, 20% more than the value of the car, right? <laughs> yeah, minimum. So I, I don't get to sell his stuff. He doesn't get to sell my stuff. Uh, I can't sell the things that don't belong to me. He can't sell them. So when, when God owns everything, we don't get a right to sell his stuff. All right. So when he says, I am giving you this land, not as forever as it's your ownership, brother, it is your dwelling place for you and your generations forever. As long as you do something, you have to pay your rent. So, so for example, if I buy a house and I don't pay my property tax, also does government rent. If I don't pay it, what happens? The government says, buy, go away. It's now belongs to the government and they sell it to somebody else. They rent it to the person. Uh, yes, Larry, your hand is up. You're muted. I can't hear you. He called it their inheritance. Yes. So it's an inheritance, but there's no stipulation on this inheritance. This inheritance can only pass through generation as long as you obey something. And he explains it in it what his requirement, what his rent fee 
the inheritance is. It's obedience to the Shemitah cycle system and the Jubilee cycle system. If you fail to, 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 to obey and follow the Shemitah and Jubilee cycle system, you are no longer paying your rent. You get evicted. And the eviction is a form of soldiers come in, take your body, what's left of it, if it's still alive, and insert it from here over to there and cast it away. That is your eviction notice. We call the sheriff here, but as far as our modern day, we have the sheriff comes by and because your eviction notice, right? Well, that's God's eviction notice. He doesn't use a sheriff with a gun. He uses army with it. With, well, now they use guns, but at that time, they use swords. So it's still the eviction process the same. You have to pay your rent. Yes, Jeff. If you don't pay your rent, you are rent from the land. <laughs> right, exactly. You are rent from the land. So, so this eviction notice, it's still eviction still happens. He points out, hence he points out that he would say, he say quite plainly, if you fail to follow these instructions, it's, uh, let's, see, let's go back to uh, verse uh, 23, I think it is. Right. So verse 23 is the instruction, the example. He says, hey, by the way, this is why you can't sell things that don't belong to you. Verse 23, 25, so the Luke is 25, verse 23, it points out, says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, which means forever. For the land is mine. I mean, it's not yours, it's mine. It belongs to God. You are sojourners and residents with me, which you are renters on my land. You are renters of my property. You are dwelling with there with me, but you don't own it. I can't go into somebody's private home, say, thank you for the party. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, by the way, I just sold your house to the guy over there. <laughs> I, you, number one, you wouldn't invite me back to your house. I'm sure the party you just the party's over. Go away now. Um, but the point is, we call that stealing. <laughs> and fraud. If I try to sell your house underneath you, we call that fraud. It's some, I'm stealing your house. So, we don't do that. God said, you can't do that. It doesn't belong to you. You can't steal my house and sell it underneath me. It belongs to me. You are, in fact, soldier. Your dwellers are just hanging out here as long as you're alive until you're no longer alive and you're paying your rent still. Then I'm going to evict you. If you don't, if you don't pay your rent, evict you. As long as you're alive, though, and you're paying your rent, you can stay. So the land always belongs to God. Now, there are certain circumstances which he points out that it will belong to specific individuals, meaning belonging, they can use it, and it does not return to anybody else. But the only individuals that can belong to under certain conditions, which are talked to in chapter 27, as far as how you could permanently transfer the rentership to the person. We call it, I call it rentership, that's about ownership. So you can permanently, perpetuity, transfer rentership to the person through a specific process. Process number one, the most, the, the easiest way of doing that, is you dedicate, which means you sell, you dedicate your land to the priests, to the Levites. I'm selling this. The house, for example, is permanent, but I'm selling this land to them. And if I don't redeem it, which means buy it back by the next jubilee cycle, the priest then permanently takes possession of the land. It's always his. Now, he has during this time period between the time which I sell it to him and I redeem it, if he sells it to another person while he is in ownership of it, during this, this, this cycle which I'm waiting for the Jubilee, then the person who buys it can own the land permanently. 
get that? It doesn't go back to me, the seller. So if I had a chunk of land, hey, high priest number seven, um, I don't need this land and I need some money, but I don't want to sell it to a stranger. I'm going to sell it to you, high priest. Hold on to it for me. That's great. But if I don't buy it back the Jubilee, the priest now takes permanent ownership of it. I can't buy it from him. Well, that's not true. I could buy it from him, theoretically, but it would be like one of my family would buy it from him if, if I didn't buy it. Like my son could buy it from me if the Jubilee didn't happen yet. So that's like, it'd be permanently his. Then at that point, he, should, he, he wouldn't be able to sell it from that point on. So once it becomes permanently his, he can't sell it. But if for some reason he comes along and says, okay, hey, you know, Daniel, you sold the land to me 18 years ago. Jubilee's coming next year. Do you have time to buy it? I said, I have money to buy it. I don't have money to buy it. It's okay. Well, the priest said, I don't want to keep it, but I'm going to sell it. So if you're not going to buy it, I'll sell it to somebody else. Then it, it was 18 years ago. I sold it to him. He can sell it to Jeff. And Jeff now permanently owns that land. I can't, the Jubilee comes, it's his. It doesn't return to me because I went through the priesthood to do it. Now, if I bypass the priesthood, no, I'm going to sell it to Jeff directly. Instead, it did not go through the priesthood. Then yes, it goes back to me. Does that make sense? So the priest is a way of making something permanent as opposed to making something temporary. So you can make a Jubilee cycle return to you if you make it if you make a direct sale between you and the person buying. If you go through the priest to sell it, then it is a permanent transfer. It doesn't return to you. It's a permanent transfer. Does that make sense? So that's a way of which you can make a permanent transfer and not make a permanent transfer. For example, let's say the land I was inherited and inherited was a sheer cliff looked like this. And I don't like rock climbing. <laughs> okay. I really have no use for this land. It's a sheer cliff. All right. I'm not going to sit there and I'm not going to build a house on it. It's, it's a really steep drop. I mean, even a goat would avoid going up that thing. I could say, uh, priest, I don't want this. It's not useful to me. The priest said, okay, well, it might be useful to a rock climbing company and you may not want to be one. That's fine. So the priest said, I can, I can buy it from you. And, and, and hold on to it in case you want to change your mind. But if you really don't want it, I'll sell the rock, company, rock climbing company over there or the quarry over there who wants to tear it apart and take it and break the rocks down. It's permanently theirs if I do so. And I make that decision. Is that, do I want that permanent? Not just for me, but for my generations to come. All of them. I can make that decision. It's a tough decision to make. It's not a very wise one. So I'll just hold on to it and make my own rock quarry. But that's just my own, how I would do it. But that's just me. Assuming the environmentalists wouldn't stop me. Let's move forward, though. So in the case of of a permanent chain transfer, it doesn't usually happen unless you went through this particular process to make that occur. In the case of uh, uh, so the land belongs to so there's way in which the land you cannot be sold permanent permanently because it belongs to God, but this is the method which you can sell permanently. And by the way, the priest is is not allowed to sell the land to a foreigner in this fashion. He can sell it to a fellow Israelite, but not to a foreigner. So I can't make a permanent transfer to a foreigner. I can sell a permanent transfer to another Israelite, but not to a foreigner. So there are some rules the priest has to abide by. Uh, okay, let's move forward a little bit. So we understand the nature of Levites uh, and what they can do, the, the, the authority given to them. We also have this nature of, of, uh, of, of certain things are returned, certain things are not, obviously houses and such. We buy and sell houses. They are permanently bought and sold. They are not uh, temporary like, like a, 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 a jubilee cycle would be for a property or like that out, out in the field and such. 
Let's do a little bit uh, over. To the, I'm going to skim through some of this really quickly because some of this, we've covered this, covered this many times. Our Torah portions, uh, the idea of slaves, uh, how to return, how to reserve, how to how to re- restore slaves from from their ownership and such. How you become a slave, all that kind of stuff. We said in the past many times. I'm approaching just a hair different. There's just a few details which I've mentioned before, and I'll mention get a different perspective this time around because I have haven't discussed it in a particular way. Uh, so a slave, for example, an, a, an, a non-Israelite has to return the slave if he buys an Israelite slave in the Jubilee if the man or woman who bought him lives in your nation. So, for example, this law about returning the Israelites and making them free in Jubilee, it applies to the land specifically. If a foreigner, let's say, for example, I was living in Israel and 1,500 years ago, about 2,500 years ago, in this place, this took place and I was sold. And let's say the person who bought me was not a resident of Israel. Let's say he's a foreigner. Let's pretend they're, um, I don't know, from Ethiopia. Why not, right? And they're not an Israelite citizen. They're not, oh, they're not Torah observant. They're their own Gentile. No relation to God whatsoever. No, no, no relevance to it. And he buys me. He's not a resident of Israel. And he goes back to his home nation. Guess what? By the law of his home nation is what he obeys. He's not a resident of Israel. Therefore, in the Jubilee cycle, he doesn't have to set me free. It says the sojourners who live among you, who live in your land, they're the ones who have to obey the law of his land and set me free. So when you're a slave being sold, you don't pay attention to who your master is going to be. See, I don't want, you know, Joe Shmuley, number 7, 8, and 7, 14, but number 3 and 5 are good, and uh, uh, I don't know about 13. So you Make sure you say, okay, that guy, sell me to him or him or him, but not to him, him, or the other guy. <laughs> because they're local people here, but the drawback is I go to the highest bidder, depending on what, what I've done. So you usually get sold from poverty or sold from crimes. So if I stole a million dollars and I spent it all or gave it away, then the person who spies me, they want, to, they want the million dollars back. So if a foreigner is going to pay a million dollars, somebody else will pay $3 for me because I'm a thief. He'll pay a million. Guess what? I get sold to him. So don't commit crimes. It's not a wise choice. <laughs> it's a short, it's a short uh, uh, career path. You may get yourself sold and carried off to some of the land. Some of the land. You don't know. Anyhow, so, that, so there is a way in which you can obey and disobey the laws of God in the case of, uh, of, of Israelites and Jubilees. Let's see, move a little bit here. Uh, oh, yeah, the whole sold to an idol thing. That's what we, if you get, if you, when people get sold to an idol, it means you're working for a foreign god in the case of like a, a temple worship or whatever, some of those lines. So there's, there's ways which that can happen. A, a priest of another religion can buy you as a slave. Uh, and though don't ask me why another idol and temple will be working with the land of Israel. Not supposed to be, but of course, obviously they were, but they weren't supposed to be. Uh, I will bypass. Actually, let's do a question about the valuations. You guys cover the valuations. The fact that you know some people are worth twenty shekels, some fifty, some fifteen, some five. Uh, the, the actual numbers. Yeah, have like prior talk on that. So we, we, we've talked about that. Yeah, yeah. The valuations are not. They, they, there's valuations for what they're done for. Uh, in our modern day world, we have a hard time understanding the idea of like, I'm going to sell myself to temple service, but not. Instead, I have to buy, I have to buy it, and pay for it, uh, because only certain people are allowed to work in the temple. 
Certain people are allowed to say, hey, I, 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 I can work, I can do this, do that. Well, Levites can go in there, but not everybody else necessarily can. So you can, you can dedicate yourself or your person uh, or they're like your family member to temple service, but they can't actually serve to so get paid. I mean, you, not they didn't pay, but you have to pay for their valuation. The priest can then sell them accordingly to, to you, back, tell them back to you, if you or wish you to redeem them, it's your business. As a valuation cycle, I'm not going to go through that today. It's not, it's not terribly relevant. Uh, you can discuss it if you wish to. Uh, let's see here. Uh, see. Oh, wait. Oh, let's not cover that yet. I should not. Yeah, I will cover that next. Yeah, that's wisest. So, chapter 26. Let's do 26. So, uh, mind you, 25, 26, 27 are all written in the context of Shemitah and Jubilee cycles. So, don't pull them out of context. You'll get a screwy thought process. Keep them within the context of the Shemitah and Jubilee cycles. So the, it's the observance of them or the lack of observance of them, which these three chapters are concerned with. So folks, think about that when it says, for example, that uh, these plagues that God will put upon you, for example, for failure to obey them, he is not referring to plagues of, I forget, I didn't keep Passover this year. These, these plagues are not referring to those. These plagues are not referring to the, oh, yeah, I, I was coveting so-and-so stuff. These are not coveting issues. These plagues are referring to focusing on the Shemitah and Jubilee cycles in particular, the observance of them or lack thereof. This is how this is process is supposed to work. He, they, they, they were purposely grouped together. You'll note that some of these laws are not written other places. They're written just here, but they're repeated, meaning the consequences can be repeated other places. Like Deuteronomy, for example, repeats a lot of them for other reasons. And Deuteronomy repeats a lot of these curses because for other reasons, for failure to do other things. But these particular ones listed here are focused on the Shemitah and Jubilee cycles, failure to observe them. So this is going to be a little bit of a, of, of, of a, of a uh, run through, okay? So chapter 26, I would jump to, yeah. Jump down to verse, okay, so I'm a, there's, there's lots of good blessings, right? Which says this, the cursing, which is what I want to focus a little bit on. Not that I like to put curses, but like most uh, uh, journalists, they know so you know bad news sells. <laughs> bad curse sells, right? So but negative things sell. People interested in them. Uh, verse 14, if you will not listen to me, will not perform these commandments, if you say my decree is loathsome and, you, and you're being rejected by utterances as I perform them out of my commandments so that annul my covenant, then I will do the same to you. I will sign upon you panic, sudden lesions, Burning fever, which cause eyes to long and souls to suffer. So these are these are they're negative things. If you fail to do the shmita or jubilee cycle systems, as far as setting people free, bad things are going to happen to you. So the question I have for you: Don't ask this, but just think about it. What makes a person not follow a shmita cycle? Now, the same question can be asked. What makes a person not follow a Shabbat? What makes a person not follow the Ten Commandments? What makes a person not follow freedom? Those are open-ended questions because there's many, many different answers to them. But in this instance, what I want to focus your attention upon is what is it focuses here as the reason listed? Now, one of the reasons he pointed out was when you ask, what will I eat in the seventh year? Because they didn't plant. He says, don't worry. 
I'll bless you in the sixth year. So what is their concern? Their concern was lack of survival in the seventh year. That is a citation given here for the Shemitah cycle system. This is sabbatical. That is also a common, at least I have heard, that maybe you guys have it, but I have, common reason cited for working on Shabbat. That's my job. I have to pay bills. I have bills to pay. I have to work and earn a living. Working overtime is needed. It's a necessity. It has to be done. Huh. Same argument for the seventh year. But I wanted to eat. It's a necessity. It has to be done. I, I have to work. I have to, I have to serve. I have to take care of this. I have to do these things because it's required. Else I, I, will, I won't make it. Okay. Jubilee cycle. Well, I can't give up all these things because I need them. I can't just you know, willy-nilly do nothing. I have to survive. I have to take care of. Bills to pay. Mortgage rent. Mortgage, mortgage and rent. Right? The citation given here from God as his point was, which clearly apparently since he cited it, I'm guessing this is probably what he hears. He heard or anticipated them to hear a lot was, I need to provide for my family still. I still have to eat something. I have to work anyway in spite of your law. Now, in the case when Jeremiah is in the scene, many, many years later, he hears similarly in the whole, oh, we'll set our slaves free, but or not. We'll take it back again. The whole, I need somebody to take care of me, I need somebody to provide me, I need to work. We, we can't just set these people free. That's ridiculous. We can't, we can't free this stuff. We can't stop working. We can't take days off. That's ridiculous. We can't take whole years off. We don't do that. They lose money. Lose our power. Lose our money. Lose our, lose our food. I'm suspecting since God cited that here, Jeremiah cites it later on, um, that's probably what he hear, heard a lot. That's probably the excuse given. I need to work. I have a job to do. To work. Business, business is open. Things are still moving. To work. I have to work. I have to work. Produce more. Gain more. I have to work. That's most likely the reason. I say most likely because the Bible cites that those are two common, those two, two instances where that happens. That's the reason given. That's the reason why Shpita is ignored according to our instructions here. It's also the reason which I've heard why Shabbat is ignored. Not on every case, but many cases. It's also the reason Jeremiah heard when he was when he pointed out they were ignoring it. These are the these are the reasons. And Jeremiah pointed out in I think it's uh, chapter sixteen or seventeen, I think it's seventeen of, of Jeremiah that the whole well it's Shabbat yet, yeah, but we're working Shabbat. We're bringing us stuff in to buy and sell still. We have to. It's a business. We can't just stop. And Jeremiah said, "This is ridiculous. You don't, just, this is not how you obey. This, you don't, you don't don't bring somebody, Don't carry your burdens. Don't bring your stuff for sale into in, into into the temple into uh, Jerusalem." On Shabbat, you take the day off, honor it, respect it. But the excuse given to all, but we have to, we have to supply ourselves. And Jeremiah 17 also points out that, yeah, it's, by the way, it's, it's our Haftar portion. Um, also points out that, hey, those of you who trust in yourself to gain wealth, you're going to lose it. You trust in God to gain wealth, you will gain it. So the idea that I'm going to be guilty or not obedient to this law because I need to provide for, I need to take care of, I you have fears to take care of and do these things, they're bogus examples. I mean, they're real examples given, but they're bogus excuses, you say. I bring this up in particular, I want to focus a particular attention, or narrow down a little bit here, uh, that 
the reason or the the purpose for indifference or apathy toward God, which is what this whole by the way, my Bible uses the word casualness. When you treat me casual, I will treat you also with casualness. That's indifference, the same way as apathy. I don't care. I don't care if you exist, I don't care if you don't exist. That's that's a word. The casualness that my Bible uses the English word casual, is Hebrew is more accurate to describe as indifference or apathy, not caring. Don't love or hate. I don't care about you. Is 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 a more accurate uh, uh, translation for it. There was a warning given, not just here, but in other instances too, more recent history as well. Uh, that there's a warning given that if you focus your life and your wealth and your prosperity and your pleasures, and that is your focus, your greatness will go away. Now, that was given by uh, Ezekiel points that out as well as Proverbs, but the American uh, prophet uh, John Winthrop pointed that out as well. So this is an important thing not I call a prophet because he was the starting of our nation um, and a preacher too. But that the, 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 if, you value, if you value your wealth and pleasure, prosperity and pleasure, you will lose your prosperity and pleasure. That was his, his long sermon. He's a very famous sermon about that. That's a whole City on the Hill sermon thing. Really, really, really famous one, right? Uh, uh, City on the Hill? Light on the Hill? I think it's City on the Hill. Um, this is an important thing not to, don't grab a hold of your wealth and pleasure, prosperity and pleasure as your God. Because once you serve that, that as your God, you will then lose it. He points out, even his sermon points out, these used to the same thing. All these wealth and pleasures, they all belong to God. Just like the land of Israel, the dirt, the houses, the Jubilee cycles, the Jubilee cycles, they belong to God. You are renters. You're just renters of it. You get to dwell there forever as long as you pay your rent, meaning obey, obey the instructions, but they still belong to God. And Ezekiel pointed out in Ezekiel 16, all the gold and silver belong to God anyway. So valuing them, gaining them, they belong to him. You are renters of it. So I have a gold piece in my hand. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> gold piece in my hand. I don't own it. I may have paid for it. I may have paid cash for it. I don't own it. It's value. It's maybe value to me, but God is the owner. I'm holding on to it for him. I didn't make the thing. He did. I'm holding on to it. I, I have the ability to use it to do certain things, but he's the owner of it. God owns it. So if I'm worshiping the object that God has given me, what's God going to think? I'll take my stuff back. Thank you very much. You're now being evicted. <laughs> you don't need this. If I cling on to it as if it's mine, but I know it's not, it's a devaluation of the one who gave it to me. I, I've ruined the reputation of the one who gave it to me. I point this out to you because there's a statement in here in chapter, uh, verse 27. I think it's verse 27. Yeah, chapter 27, verse 27. It says, uh, Oh, there, no, verse, uh, verse uh, 20, verse 30. So I will destroy your altar buildings, decimate your, your sun idols, and will cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols. My spirit will reject you. This is one of the, one of the, one of the curses about as far as uh, not, not following the Shemitah or the, the Jubilee year cycles. Let's go back and let's, let's, let's tear down the idols to a, a, a lower level. It's not about the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the shape, how many arms it has, and what color of metal it's made of, or rock or wood. Discard that. 
and this and and, and we're not going to discuss the difference between an idol and a god, a pagan god. Reality is, as far as people are concerned, they're tied together. All right, they 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 associate one with the other. I realize they're not, but that's we're so let's let's break it down to a lower level than the outset appearance. All right, describe the outset appearance. Why does someone offer something to an idol or god? They want something in return, right? Think about that. I want um, favor. I will offer this thing, whatever it is, to this idol or god to gain favor. Or I want prosperity. I will offer this idol or god for prosperity. I want uh, you know, victory in battle. I'll offer this thing to idol or god to get victory in a battle. It's all about what I want. I want something, therefore I will do this to this idol or god to get the something that I want. This, this, the, this is the relationship that man has with a god or an idol. If you pray to it, because you're wanting something from it. If you offer something to it, you want something from it. If you give something to it, because you want something from it. It's an exchange, you make an exchange of stuff. I give you this, you give me that. All right, that's the process how the idea is supposed to work. Whether the thing is protection, money, pleasure, whatever, freedom makes a difference. You, I give you this, you give me that. It's an exchange, as if the God has power over those things. That's the idea behind it. So, in the context of Shemitah, Jubilee, and uh, freedom, giving things up and not working, not, not, not harvesting and not gaining your wealth and such on those on these year cycles if you have sun idols what are you doing now what is the sun idols function well it's not the idol used for victory in battle the sun is the thing that goes up the sky across and comes down over there the sunset right that's the sun that's the sun does what it comes up gives you warmth goes down what does the warmth do it grows plants grows crops grows animals grows money and goes down What's the purpose of sun idol? Well, all the different things you can exchange, you want the sun idol to bring forth wealth and prosperity because that is the form of wealth, form of measure in form of food, measure for of animal growth, like livestock growing, and for, of course, with money and warmth. So those things that associate with all your wealth comes from the sun. That's the idea of the sun idol. So in this instance, in the case of the Shemitah and Jubilee cycle, the context of sun idol He's referring to the context of wealth and prosperity. So these people have their sun idols. They have their offerings to the God of wealth and prosperity. God's pointing out, you have these idols amongst you because you want wealth and prosperity. Therefore, I'm going to destroy you and leave your dead body on the dead body of that dead idol of wealth and prosperity. You're not going to get it. That's the idol. The desiring of this God of wealth and prosperity. So, now let's jump up to modern day. This is why I think John Winthrop was brilliant. And that's why, that's why I call him prophet. He points out, America has a distinct, unique responsibility and problem. Now, he was, he was a Puritan, just showing up in New England, so Massachusetts colony, that kind of thing, all, all stuff, the, the pilgrims and such. He's, he's one of those guys. We will succeed in our endeavor, his argument was, as long as 
we do not fall. He used the word, um, uh, do not attribute our success. Do not fall. Do not fall the wealth, the gods of wealth and prosperity, wealth and pleasure. He used the word wealth and pleasure. So is it America's weakness, which is mankind's weakness, identical regardless whether you're American, Chinese, South American, African, makes a difference. The God of wealth and pleasure is our downfall. If you pursue your God of wealth and pleasure, you will no longer be wealthy or have pleasure. That was Winthrop's point. If you pursue these things, you will lose them. Which totally makes sense. He was a preacher for a reason. The guy wasn't dumb. <laughs> okay. He knows his Bible well. And he cited that this is the reason why the church in the New Testament gave up the soldiers to possessions and sold their stuff and shared the people because they were desiring wealth and prosperity not because or not through the, the not through the gain of wealth and prosperity, rather through the sharing of with, with people. In his citation of example of that, he also cited Ezekiel and Proverbs as well, is that these wealth and prosperity gods that we are inclined to follow, which is a big problem for all Americans in particular, but also nations in general, human beings in general, the gods of wealth and prosperity, it will distort your viewpoint. You will no longer be that great thing you're supposed to be. You'll no longer achieve it, and you will lose your wealth and prosperity. So he pointed out that those who are wealthy, their function with the wealth is to help their fellow man, not through giving money, but to raise up and benefit mankind. And those who are poor, God made them poor and struggle, they will have something to struggle for and succeed in. So he views them as, they, these are, these are a, net, a net grouping, they work together. You have to have a rich and you have to have a poor to work together. And they work together, not by giving money back and forth, not by social programs. <laughs> he wouldn't use the term, but it's through, through, through the responsibility to fellow man, to better one's fellow man. That was his argument. That principle is how he viewed the New Testament church, which is probably really accurate, honestly, and that it was about your personal gain. It was what does it help everybody with? How do we help everybody be, be, be benefited, benefited by the wealth God gave you or the poor industrious person you are and how to work your way up. It's, it's, it's a benefit to both. That was his argument. So if we have this people in the Shemitah cycle and the Jubilee cycle, and uh, Jeremiah 17 discusses this, who say, okay, I gained wealth through my work, through my effort, through my dishonest gain, or through my own means, and not through my God, you now have a mis-messed up or distorted viewpoint and you will not be honoring the Shemitah. You will not be honoring the Jubilee because you will not be honoring the Shabbat because they don't gain you your wealth and your prosperity as far as in your viewpoint. If, however, you realize that your wealth and prosperity is because of your honoring of Shabbat, is because of your honoring the Shemitah, is because of you doing the Jubilee, then you actually gain those things you're trying to claim that they come from because that is the order which it comes from. And God's, God seemed to ex, ex, use that as, as the example when he pointed out in Amos about, hey, you guys, you're, you're obeying, and as they did the same thing, you're obeying bits and parts, but not truly. You're just waiting for the clock to click, okay, and now we get to oppress. <laughs> That's not the point. Or, 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 or Jeremiah, and the, the, you're waiting for the clock to tick down. She's, now I get to go ahead and exploit my fellow neighbor to gain my wealth and pleasure. These are not valuable things. These are not things which, which you should be desiring or, or are beneficial to you. 
And if you fail to do them, here's a list of all the things you're going to do amongst you, which Gentry discusses. They'll scattering you amongst your foes. Uh, you will not have the power to withstand them. You will eat your daughters. You will eat your sons. Uh, you, you will lose everything you have. The land will eventually discourse. You will be, be scattered about and the nations about the nation. And you will, and when you are in those nations, you will be fearful and not of, of any, of any good courage at all. These, these are all destructive behaviors. You'll be utterly obliterated and rejected, be rejected by God. But no, sorry, not really. That's not true. He will not, he will not, he will not destroy you completely because he, he said, perhaps in this nation you'll go to, you will humble yourself and realize the errors you've made. I want to point that out. This is very interesting to me. Maybe, it didn't, maybe it's not to you, but it is to me. Verse 41 of 26. I too will behave toward them with casualness or, or indifference, um, and I will bring to them into the land of their enemies. Perhaps then their unfeeling heart will be humbled, and then they'll gain atonement for their sin. I remember a covenant with my Jacob, a covenant with Isaac, also with a covenant with Abraham, I'm going to remember the land. The land will be rough to them and, and it will be atoned for its sabbaticals, having become desolate through them and they must gain atonement for their iniquity because they revolted against my ordinances and because their spirit rejected my decrees. We have a, a, a statement in the New Testament that atonement is through blood. That's how atonement is done. And that's true. For sins and, and treasures and iniquities, atonement is through blood. When it comes to the land, atonement the land the land doesn't want blood. Yeah, it throws you out. That's correct. The land will vomit you out if you spill blood on it. The land isn't atoned through blood. The land is atoned by kicking you out. That's how land is atoned. So we have the way of atonement for our sins, treasures, and iniquities. We atone for the articles, the temple, and, and tabernacle and pieces and parts. When it comes to abusing the land, the way of eternal land, you get thrown out until you become humble again. Your humility and humbleness, your 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 your, your repentance, that is what brings you at the time, of course. That is brings you and atones the land, the dirt itself. So atonement for yourself is through blood, but atonement for land is through vacating you, kicking you out until you become humble again. That's what you get land atoned for. That's a land is atoned for, of course, in our instructions here for the comes to Shemitah. If you just slaughter people or slaughter animals, spilling blood, God said, Moses put it, that contaminates the land. That makes it full of blood. That doesn't clean it up. That makes it worse. So spilling blood in the land to make the land atone for it, for your sins, for your iniquities, doesn't clean the land. That may clean you, but not the land. The land's cleaned through your humbleness through your repentance. That's how land is clean. That's how land is atoned for transgressions against it. It's, it's, it's one of the rare instances which atonement is not through blood. There is only a few instances which is not through blood. And that's, that's the primary that I know of. It's the primary one that I know about. There is a way in which you can do it through grain. It's a different story. And not, not through lamb as far as atonement. You can do it atonement for other, other means too. But it's important to note that there are certain instances which your humility and your humbleness, your, your, your sorry, repentance, humility, your repentance can fix a royal screw up. And this is the case of being vomited out of your land. You can, if you can, that can be fixed through humility, repentance. But he also points out 
It's going to take time. It won't be immediate. It's going to have its rest while, it's, while you're going through this process. So it's possible the 1800 years we're referring to was the land of rest. They did not have to deal with this, this with, 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 with its inhabitants that were that, that uh, God said, I'm kicking you out for a long, 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 long time. The tale of the chapter, we're going to conclude with this, the tale of the chapter 27. It, again, everything is done within the context of Shemitah Jubilee cycles. We're going to end with this, this principle, this thought process. Just put it in your head. You will note that these gifts in chapter 27 are listed after all the gifts and the offerings given in early in the book of Leviticus. Those offerings are, you know, free will offerings listed early on, uh, Shemitah, sorry, 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 uh, uh, Shalomim offerings mentioned, mentioned early on, the Chata offerings for sins. And all, those are all listed early on. Gifts like this, in the form of money, are listed at the very end. There's a reason for that. Um, Judaism has long since valued this. It's put at the end because it's not that important in comparison to obedience. So Leviticus starts out pretty early on of how do you get back in the temple? How do you get back in with God? It's obedience and instructions, all the instructions how to get there. At the tail end are gifts, vows, offerings of that nature. They're not related to following. So you follow to get back in with God. After you follow back to God, the tail of Leviticus way over at the end. Oh, by the way, now I'll accept gifts from you. So if I am a terrible human being, I'm just made everything God says and say, okay, God, I'm a terrible person. I know that. Uh, here's 50, 50, shekels of corn, uh, 50 shekels of silver. Now we're good, right? We call that bribery. <laughs> so no, we're not good. <laughs> just because I give gifts doesn't make me right with God. It's the obedience listed. All the instructions through Leviticus, the obedience is what you get there. That makes your life and his life mesh well together. The, I've been rejecting you, and now I'm going to give you some money. I'm going to give you some stuff. Say, hey, here, now we're good. We have an understanding now, God, right? No, we don't. There are ways which he said you will do this. After you've done all these things, when you're working with these things and doing this correctly, I will now accept gifts from you that are separate or outside of it in the form of valuations of vows and offerings of money. It's important why it's thrown at the end. It's important. That's not to accentuate. But what do we as people do? We say, God, what if I just give this to you? Is that good enough? How about I just do this for you? That, that's good. That'll take care of us, right? This will, this will make us good, right? I did something for you. You should just leave it out. I gave you a gift. Well, I'm not obedient to you, but I gave you a gift. And it says, no. That's not how you fix it. Giving the gift is not the gift. It's not how it's fixed. It doesn't fix our relationship. Obedience fixes the relationship, not the gift. So it's important to note that gifts are thrown at the very end on purpose, not by accident. Because some of these things you say, well, they, they, they contextually, they would make sense to put them earlier on with all the other offerings, what they're talking about, how they're valued. No. He wants them valued. He, the, 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 the God or, or whoever compiled or arranged it one valued the very end of not related. And also, even, even in the text of 27, he actually recites the, the, the Shemitah cycle too. He wanted it valued and shoved together at that point when it comes to gifts in order to make, in order to 
be kind or generous in, for, in God's eyes. Your kind of generosity doesn't mean anything when you're disobedient. When you disregard his instructions. So it's important to understand that gifts are a separate thing. They don't make your life right with God. Obedience does. Gifts are done at the end after you become obedient with God. Hopefully it makes sense. So I won't have time to go through Jeremiah 17, but it's a great read. Um, I recommend not stopping where the Torah portion tells you to stop. Finish the chapter. <laughs> Finish the whole thing. Because it's, 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 it's one of the, the most often cited uh, questions we'll bring up. Well, what does this mean about his, his, the obedience? Um, about as far as Sabbath observance? Remember, you're thinking Sabbath observance, think Shemitah observance too. They're, they're, you should think the same way when you're viewing them. So it's important to think that or notice that when Jeremiah 17 is a great story, it's great, sorry, sorry, great uh, prophecy given, as well as instructions and corrections. And then, of course, chapter 18, which is, follows that, is, is how God will, re, will correct this. Uh, yes, Jeff, your hand is up. You were uh, an interesting point related to this this topic of the uh, Shemitah and the, and the Yobel and um, the sale of land, ownership of land, transfer of land, et cetera, and who it belongs to. Very interesting. Someone was, was uh, talking recently about um, a uh, an essay or a series of essays that Alexis de Tocqueville uh, wrote. You know, a lot of people know him from uh, writing about uh, democracy in America, a very long book talking about what made um, this country different at its outset from uh, especially his France, which was in the midst of uh, turmoil right. um, from a revolution of a different sort. So he traveled around America was trying to understand uh, what what the differences were. And it, it was kind of interesting because they were talking about this series of essays he wrote later called, um, uh, in particular, they talk on pauperism, uh, pauperism. P-A-U-P-E-R, another word for uh, those who are poor or who have less means. And um, in his second memoir on pauperism, he he notes that, you know, uh, who are among the members of the lower classes, those ones who engaged more willingly to all the excesses of intemperance and who prefer to live each day as if it were, if there were no tomorrow. And he's writes mostly in this essay about uh, France and some of what the the groundswell uh, that led to the French Revolution. And he goes on later and talks about, does not one perceive that as these people come to possess small part of ground, however small, their ideas alter and their habits change? Is it not visible that the thinking about the future emerges with land ownership? And then he goes on talking about you know, how um, you build this idea of permanence and legacy and um, thinking about tomorrow with uh, a connection to the land and, and agriculture. But uh, something he goes on and then talks about the Industrial Revolution. And the issue there is that when you're an industrial society, you don't have a lot of people with land ownership. So what he talks about then is that... Um, the encouragement of uh, promoting people to develop savings because as he says here 
Since we cannot give uh, the workers an ownership share in the factory, we can at least help them with salaries they get from the factory to create an independent property, promote savings on wages, and provide workers an easy and safe method to capitalize on those savings and make them produce income. Such are are the only ways society can use today in order to combat the ill effects of the concentration of movable property in the same hands and to give the working class the spirit and habits of the property the large portion of the agricultural class has. So interesting idea there in in talking about, you know, an industrial society, we will, you know, what crops do we really have? And that's something that you see long from the Bible is this idea, it's in the Torah about you convert your uh, agricultural produce to some sort of money and then you transport that long distances to convert it back into agricultural produce there at the temple for the various festivals. So we in our society today, we think about our resources, we should think about them more like agriculture and more like crops here. And um, for our own personal, um, you know, we are growing crops of a sort, even if we're not involved with with agriculture. And thus, just as farmers think about the future and as you were talking about with the Shemitah cycles about how the Lord even provides for the 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 future and that's for the sixth year to go through to the eighth year um or <laughs> beyond that uh that you have the the sense that in your own dealings and own thinking that you should also have that look to the future but also see that there are the the, the time periods that um, there may be the work of heaven to, to take you beyond where you think you can go, just like with the crops. So it's very That's an interesting point. Yeah, very interesting. It makes it makes sense though, because you're right. I don't I don't have crops. I mean, I got a tree out front. <laughs> That's not the same thing. That's the point is that if you did viewpoint, if you did view your 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 savings or your your gain as crop now i mean obviously we've always tied things like that nature but as far as imbuing it as a gain in that capacity oh i just remember okay, ramifications for that to think about those to think about some of those things as far as how you would play some of those out because they, they, there's some interesting uh well the the, the idea also is to think about your um about your income and your savings as property right you know um there, there is the movement here in good portions of the world and has come even into this country is, is that, you know, your, your income is not really yours and your, your uh, earnings even on your income, if you were to save it or invest it or this and that and the other, that that's not really yours either, that it belongs to somebody else. But you can think of those as being like a crop, you know, investments as being like a crop, as seeds that you plant and a crop that you you nourish. That's but true. also kind of thinking it just like in the in the agricultural world of being thinking for the future and also being thankful, just as the farmer is thankful for the bounty that comes from it. That's interesting. Well, thank you. That's an interesting point. Uh, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. This is Pamela. I'm wondering about what the history of Jubilee, um, what happened in 2017? 
the last oh days. that was the that, that was, was the transfer yeah that was the agreement that trump actually trump didn't do it technically speaking he partially did it the u.s senate uh transfer voted to transfer the um uh the they recognized jerusalem as a capital to, to, to accept capital of jerusalem as the capital of israel and then trump later on in the same year said okay yeah i'll agree to go ahead and do that so that year was the was the return of jerusalem to israel as it's as it's recognized capital uh amongst the nations which up to that point no nation was willing to do so so jerusalem got returned to Israel on a political scale, as far as the global scale got returned. It was, it physically was returned in 1967, but it was not globally returned till 2017. As far as the global, the global world would, did not, would not accept or recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel until that year. That is the return of Jerusalem to its rightful owner, the Israeli people on a global scale. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. That, very much. that was the open declaration that took place, and it it made quite the splash. <laughs> yeah, because we put our embassy in Jerusalem, and then yeah. that encouraged and other people to then suit. to kind of follow other countries to follow suit and establish their embassies in Jerusalem too. Yep, yep, yep. So politically speaking, Jerusalem officially became the center, the capital of Israel, due to that that event. But in the other other events, uh, obviously, we know seven was Jerusalem. But in 1917, that was the uh, the uh, uh, British that conquered and returned to Israel to the Jews, and then in 1867, the British did it as well for a different. It started the process in 1867. It was a long time. Second memo on pauperism. You have that link there. That's that's its title. Oh, okay. Alex de Tocqueville's second memoir on pauperism. My son was actually going to the Prince of Popper with my father recently about the whole changing perspective when you totally unrelated, but it was interesting. Any other comments or questions? We'll conclude otherwise. Daniel, what is your title of today's talk? When you ask complicated questions like that, <laughs> you're not going to get a good answer. <laughs> uh, honestly, this. Yeah, it's your job, isn't it? <laughs> um, title. Do I have a couple of titles? I'm never good at titles. Uh, well, I guess I guess uh, in some ways you'd have to say it was it was it was probably about. Uh, oh crud! You have beat no. I guess. Uh, Sevens in the lamp. Sure, why not? Land is treated differently than people. They're not the same. That's really what it is. Land is, God has special rules about land he wants you to follow. Even though we think of land as, you know, I came to the land, I'm I'm part of the land, I'm a nation. It's not the same. Nations aren't the same as as land and laws are the same as land. They're treated differently. It's like they have their own life to them. So I I don't know how else to describe it. I'm not very good at titles. That's a Book people do, right? Write titles, make my title. Uh, yes. Good <laughs> <laughs> job. Yes, Larry, your hand is up. So I was once again here. So we're saying that those land things about leaving your land fallow, that's only in the nation of Israel? Uh, it is, it, God will hold it against you if you do not when it comes to the nation of Israel. It means he so what counts about it. Us? 
What about uh, us now, over here? Yeah, so us over here. Uh, I, I, my personal Daniel H's opinion. This is my personal opinion. I'll explain. I, I, I think I explained it reasonably well, but I'll explain why. So Shabbat is applied whether I'm in Israel or in Sonoma County. It doesn't matter. Shavuot is applied whether I'm in Israel or Sonoma County. Doesn't matter. The the uh, the the Omer offering the seven weeks are applied whether I'm in Israel or Sonoma County. Doesn't matter. God held Israel to the Shemitah cycles whether they obeyed it in the land or not. So my opinion, this is my Daniel H's opinion. I believe if you are going to follow God and treat the gifts he gave you, whatever land was, whether it's in Sonoma County or whether it's in Israel, that you're going to follow the Shemitah principles behind them. That's my opinion. It's just an opinion, which has no weight of the words got in my mouth, which really don't weigh much if you weigh them. They're just hot air. So it's my opinion. Now, you may not agree with that opinion. That's totally fine with me. So we should, on the the 17th year of the century and the 67th year of the century, we should not plant our gardens. And it's no, that's the that's the jubilee, the seventeenth and sixty seventh. I mean, every seven years. That's right. Every seven every seven years, years jubilee. Shemitah every seven years. The jubilee cycle appears. I say appears appears to be focused on Israel and the Israelites' descendants specifically, as far as narrows down to that group of people in particular. And the reason I think is they're supposed to be peculiar. They're supposed to be oddballs. Those say, everybody else was looking at them and say, something's wrong with you. That's the point. <laughs> You're supposed to stand out like a sore thumb. So I think the Jubilees in particular are focused on the land of Israel, very focused on them and the people who, who own that land. But I can't, I won't necessarily say that Shemitah cycles don't. I think apply to the, the principle of person themselves, regardless of where they're at. That's my opinion. I could be dead we wrong. We have to know what the cycle is because it's not our, it's not because we were here for seven years. It's when the seventh year hits, right? Right, right. It's, it, it, it's, not, it's not your personal counting cycle. It's God's counting cycle. So we don't know what we that have, is. Well, we actually, we, 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 we actually really do. <laughs> so the cycles are actually pretty well fixed. They've been fixed. They were found, discovered, calculated, sorry, but kind of King Hezekiah. And they've maintained that count. The Shemitah, oh. the seven, every yeah, seven, seven year years. cycle. They have the year, I forgot which year it was, and King Hezekiah, which cites it, they know when that site, and they've counted from that point onward, and we know what year it is. Well, um, we have to look for our leaders to tell us what that is. Then. Yeah, our Hello Fellowship, we follow as best we can in the form of, of, of our Sukkot celebration. We, 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 we follow through the seven year cycle for reading the book of Deuteronomy. Um, crap, what is it? I think it's. Uh, in one, two, three, four, in two years from now, I think it's two years from now, right? Yeah, so two years from now, it's when our Shemitah cycle it, it, it hits again. So it, it's, and it's, I shouldn't say ours, that's not fair. When the world Shemitah cycle hits again, because there's citation, there are groups throughout the whole globe, they're on the exact same Shemitah cycle, and some by happenstance, by sheer accident, and some on purpose, but they all happen to have landed on the same cycle. So yeah, I think it's in two years from now our Shemitah cycle hits again. So we're if we're 
if, if for us, if we don't plant our gardens, we just go to the grocery store, right? So it's easy for us, right? <laughs> or do we have to not buy food that's in that year no, because so, of people yeah, so I, I, wrong I can't I can't tell you what it's going to look like for you because I don't know. I know in Israel today, when it comes to Shemitah cycles, what they do is they sell their produce at cost. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's what they do. Uh, so uh, they, they make whatever product it is, instead of making a profit off it for that particular year, they'll sell it at cost. So it costs me $8 to produce this thing. It's $8 to you. I make nothing. That was the idea. That's one of the principles, which not all of Israel, but some of the businesses Israel do. Some will cheat. I call it cheating because it's wrong to do. And they will temporarily sell through lease their business to a Gentile for the one year so they can still make money off it. And then they return it back to them at the one year. That's cheating. You're, you're trying to purposely find a loophole. Yeah, we, yeah. why would you bother then? So in those instances, they do exist. Uh, but that's, that's wrong. In the case, uh, and I can't say it's right or wrong, but it does make some sense as far as the idea, okay, you have to eat something. Cities have to have something because people, you, you, you and I have seen cities, at least in photo, photographs, something else. There are some cases, hundreds of thousands or millions of people in the same exact city, all packed together. Right? Go to Gaza, go to Gaza Strip, yeah. the most densely packed place on earth, right there, right? There's no room. There's millions of people per square, not millions, per, per unit of measure of space. So they aren't going to have food if they don't buy food for a year. And they would, they would, they would perish because they would starve very quickly. But it's be given to them. So there, and I don't understand the nature of how to make it work, but I'm not God. And I, I do realize it points out that this is the land that produces stuff on its own. You didn't purposely plant it for business. It just seeds happen to have fallen around you. For example, you gathered your wheat field, you collect out your wheat, but some wheat seeds scattered about the process and they grow on their own. All right, go eat them. Uh, you didn't do anything wrong with that. In the case, obviously, for like trees, they'll produce fruit year after year after year after year. That's what it's a fruit tree. Um, they're going to produce fruit during the shoot cycle anyway. So go out and eat it. Nothing uh, it, it, wrong with that. It's the idea of picking it to make money off it, to sell the thing to make money, is the principle of harvesting. You sow to reap, you reap to harvest in order to gain money and gain wealth. That's the idea. Don't sow your fields to harvest it. But to eat it that it had grow of its own is perfectly fine. So the idea, the principle behind that instruction appears to be don't make money off it. Don't sell it. Hence the idea of the Jewish philosophy. Well, if I sell things at cost and make zero dollars on the item, did I follow the cycle? Is it no different than someone coming to my, to my field and grabbing the piece of fruit and eating it or grabbing whatever that happens to grow? It's my cost with nothing more than the, the effort of them doing it, grabbing it to move it. Uh, so your question here, Shay, is your background garden, or is our backyard garden, if your own family's garden, is it not being obedient? That's a good question as far as I can't answer greatly in that, um, as far as what that necessarily would mean. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert when it comes to Shemitah cycles, when it comes to gardening. I'm, I'm just not. I'm just, I'm just a person. I'm, I'm, that's a different point. I'm part of the Industrial Revolution. I make, I make machines. <laughs> that's what I do. I'm not very good at it, but I try. Um, the point is that, uh, so I don't know necessarily... Um, I do know that in Jewish tradition, tradition only, they frequently, many of them, not all, many of them have chosen to not plant a garden. So what they did is they planted a garden, whatever it was, knowing sweet design was coming, let the garden go to seed, to plant itself. And whatever grew the next year, 
they harvested and ate. They didn't replant it themselves. Does it make sense? That was their methodology for their own personal backyard gardens. And they planted stuff that they were accustomed to eating, but they just let it go to seed. If it was whatever the fruit item, whatever, whatever a squash, they let it scatter about and rot on its own and see if something grew up next year. They would keep watering it, go and put water in the ground to help it grow something, but they wouldn't purposely plant it and they wouldn't sell the item which they planted. So that was one methodology which they did, and my kids loved that process. They like the lettuce keeps coming up every year because they go to, we to go to seed every year. It's just kind of, kind of fun for us, but in order to harvest it that way. But it is a method which does work, and it's because it says the lampers of its own is perfectly fine. You can go eat that as you wish, not selling it, but you're eating it. That's one methodology. Another person, my father had argued that he was referring to businesses, not to your personal backyard gardens. That's his philosophy. And I can't say he's right or wrong. It makes sense. Um, as far as because you're not selling your backyard produce to feed people to, to make money off it. That was his idea, his thought process behind it. And your produce, as his argument pointed out, his produce, your produce doesn't last for three years. I mean, you can try to harvest lettuce. If you can make it last for three years, well done. Nobody else can. Because <laughs> Lettuce doesn't last that long, right? Uh, you had to on deep freezers or whatever. You can try to you, even, even eventually, even freezers things can decompose too to some degree. So they could, we were unable to make things last. They didn't have freezers back, you know, twenty five hundred years ago. So his point was, it's referring to durable goods. So, for example, wine lasts for a very long time. If you harvest grapes, make wine. You have wine bottle years and years and years. It's still well, supposedly still good. I would argue otherwise, but <laughs> supposedly it's still good. You have your wine. That's fine. Uh, it, your, your, your grain can last for multiple years as well. So you don't get it wet. It lasts for a long time in the jars. And so things that are designed to last for a long time, his point is that seems to be the thrust because it has to be the last whatever it is for at least a three-year span. If it doesn't last for a three-year span, it couldn't be included. So for example, he pointed out milk products don't to, well, some cheeses could be really old, but most of our products don't last for three years. They didn't have pasteurization, by the way, guys. So this is the whole raw milk. Um, I wouldn't want to eat that after three years. I just really don't. If you do, uh, that's your business. So certain things don't last that long, but some things do. So his point was it appears since the, the thrust of the idea is for harvesting, to store up, to make money. That was the idea of what, focus on that, on that process. So, it, so it, things that you are just scattering about of your own herbs or whatever happens on the ground is, was not his thrust, his argument. And I can't say he's right or wrong because it, it does make sense. He has legitimate points to prove his, prove his point. And he has taught that for a number of years. I mean, in my personal opinion, I, he's, he's, his point is probably true, probably valid at least. Um, as far as allowing your grains to go to seed, that's fair too, too, as far as a method of ways which, which get around it, um, as far as that, that process. You're not, you're not purposely trying to make money off or trying to gain in your wealth and you're gaining your prosperity for your backyard garden. So your next question was, if you are not gardening at all, do you have to stop working at all for that year of what you, what, what you do for work? Uh, no, that is not the case. Um, I'll explain. In the case of the Shabbat, you obviously don't work. In the Shemitah cycle, there are other forms of work that are still considered normal or, or required or acceptable behavior. So for example, you may or may not uh, plant a garden or sorry, plant a field and harvest a field, but that has nothing to do with the person who's building your furniture. It has nothing to do with the person who's educating your children. 
Oh, this is still the, the letter ABCs or all of Bet Gimbal's <laughs> are still the same. Regardless of what year it happens to be, you still do that. In the case of that, for example, uh, I have a son or a child that's born during a Shvita cycle, the high priest or some priest just come out and still do a circumcision. All right. That's the, 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 the processes that are not related to agriculture are not relevant for the resting land. The, the point of Shvita cycle is to have the land rest, not to have workers stop doing things. That the land is to rest. Shvita cycle is focused on the land resting. So your question about, are you stopped, are you stopped working for the whole year? No. It's not the case for the year. The idea is the land rests for the year. You yourself can do something else. You can earn a living doing whatever else you wish to do that's not related to the Shvita cycle. As far as because it's still business, or you could buy and sell houses, you can still build houses for that matter. Uh, you can. But still also, work if you think about it too, in terms of um, like, let's say you you do you grow uh, wheat for a living, you're still going to um, maintain that land. You're going to make sure that um, it doesn't totally um, get run over by wild animals. You're going to repair maybe the fencing around your land. You're going to. Um, you know, do other things to prepare the land to involve planting and harvesting. There's still other things you do with the land right. um, to protect it and preserve it that you'd still be doing. And you can also, for those of you who, because the Shemitah cycle does not apply to animals as far as being animals still have to live. Some had argued that they very well may uh, open your field up to animals. Okay, for this year, I'm not going to do anything with the land, let it rest. But animals actually help land repair some instances, unless it's like a big heavy cow, <laughs> but like, you know, flock of sheep and you know, like small, small cattle. Uh, they actually benefit land too, as far as opening up for them, for their personal usage. But land, Shemitah is designed for land rest. That's the intent to, 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 to have the random land rest. It's not that the people necessarily have to rest. They can just still do something else, but the land itself is going to rest. Yes, Larry, your hand is up. Well, you know, our farmers um, do something similar to that. And I was surprised when we first talked about this, that it was always everybody did it at the same time. Because if you rotate your crops, then right. I think they do it like every three years, they'll leave a field fallow. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and they graze their animals on it. On, and, uh, and that seems to work really well. It does. You're absolutely right. And it then, does work and, well. And that way you have... Well, at any rate, no one, I don't think anybody ever does these things that God told us to do. So we don't know how that worked. How did our, how did our, how would the stuff last for three years, like you said? Grain right. would, if you grain it right. Does. Right. Grain does. That's, that's, that's a point. That certain durable crops can last, semi durable crops. Grain products, obviously, wine products, dates, certain things that have long lasting effect uh, can, can, can survive. Nuts, things that last a very long time, they can survive that and actually make, make it into the end of it. Uh, the other things don't last that long. Uh, tomatoes, unless you can them, but that's more of a modern day thing. Uh, or other types of products that don't last very long. You can't let them last for three years. It doesn't work. Hence, well, Joseph must have had it last for seven years when, he, when they had those. Right. Seven years. So, yep. So most likely he would have stored grain products, to, uh, most likely grain products for Egypt. In, in the fair, Egypt was a breadbasket of most of the world at the time. So bread, literally breadbasket means a lot, of, a lot of grain products. So it very probably was stored up grain. And beer. Yeah, that's true. And beer, right? They didn't want beer too. They they totally could make a lot of beer. And that would help when you're when you're when you're when you're miserable and have no food. Like, oh, you know, let me drink. <laughs> Let's go ahead and slosh everybody. <laughs> Wash our miseries away. <laughs> uh, anyhow. And it comes to a comment. Well, every seven years. What was that? 
what happens in the crime rate? Because everybody's everybody's drinking beer. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> or the auto accident. Right. Yeah. <laughs> beer drinkers. Uh, okay. I'm over time, guys. We talked. We were chit chatting too long. Daniel. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Daniel, I have. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, um, I have heard the. Uh, you know the upgrade of the uh, the consecutive Shemitah years, like you said, the seventh, um, the jubilee. All right, um, because you say Hezekiah's, uh, they have somehow known exactly what date would be the next one, yeah, and that kind of thing. And uh, there is there is a uh, uh, Jonathan Kahn has written out. And has found that several of the Shemitah years coincided with like the drop of the uh, financial crisis and the nine one one issue that happened at you know right at the Wall Street. Yes, he did area. make that connection. So where, yep. so where does that financial? I mean, God takes back the finances. Is, is that the tithe he's taking uh, back, or is that no, the national? So- Land right. or what question. exactly do you think that that falls into? That's a good question. So, if I was going to, I, I read I read Khan's book of all about that topic, and it's totally reasonable as far as his point. His point being that the principle of the of, of the uh, the Shemitah cycle was to uh, have, have a miniature land rest, but also your crop rest. And so, if you viewed it as actually Jeff brought it today uh, with the Tocqueville's viewpoint, if you view uh, finances and money gain as a type of crop you're gaining, then if that was your viewpoint, oh. that was your perspective, then totally that would make logical sense. That you're, you would rest from your investments as far as gaining your investments as far as trying to make money off of them. And that totally could be a legitimate, uh, a legitimate point, a legitimate viewpoint. I don't know for certain. In the case of Khan, I believe his complete argument included, though I don't remember exactly, it's been a few years since I read it, um, his, his, his argument included that the idea was that the Shemitah cycle every seven years was a miniaturized recession that would take place in the, in the, in the culture of the group and, and in the, the nation. And the idea being, if, if I recall correctly, his argument is that if you did have a miniaturized recession, you completely destroy inflationary pressures. Because if you have a cycled, in, in cycled, depre- cycled depression or recession every seven years, whatever was valued before or after is diminished during the seven-year pi- cycle. Therefore, your inflation dies. So something inflation goes up for seven years, six years, and then the seventh year, it dies and drops back down again, allowing a temporary reset of an economy and allowing people to say, okay, let's let's reevaluate that, you know, this this car, which is you buy a new car at like whatever, seventy thousand dollars, whatever, and realize, okay, but the raw materials are still worth ten. <laughs> okay, there's there's an inflationary pressure. The same car five years ago would be like twenty thousand dollars. Well, that's maybe five years ago, twenty years ago. The point is that it's been a long time. But the point is that that, that it, would, it would it would force inflationary pressures back down again. Hence, a miniaturized recession, and that was his point. And that's totally legitimate. It could be to be fair, and that if that was the idea that God could theoretically then use uh, Shemitah cycles to cause a miniaturized recession or depression in during those cycles. Um, the only thing that, that he did point out is that it's not consistent. I mean, that, they're, they're, that, that he pointed out that, that he saw there are some patterns on certain cycles of seven, but then some cycles of seven, there is nothing at all. So it's, 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 it's mm-hmm. not, even in his book, it's not, 
it's not super consistent on it doesn't god does it every seven years in our modern history modern he's, he's more of a historian than anything else mm-hmm. i'm gonna he didn't cover every seven years but he did cover two consecutive sets of seven years did but then the ones that followed didn't the one before that did it's not necessarily consistent all the time but there does be some connection or loose connection between the speed cycles and at least specific recessions that were related in during the year 2001 through 2008. But I can't say for certain he, he had a hard time. He didn't point out there were actually other ones earlier on that were also matched seven sets, but there were some gaps, which he was, he did not completely explain. Uh, yes. Jeff, your hand was up. Yeah, we uh, actually have a very interesting uh, correlation between the, the concept of the Shemitah and the thing about recessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a uh, chart of uh, a um, tur- 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 turrentine wine business wheel of yes, fortune. Yes, this is a this is a um, a bulk wine and grape brokerage here in the California North Coast, and uh, they they call this the wheel of fortune because this cycle goes around pretty much every seven to ten years. Oh. And it's all caused by the same things. Where basically you you have um, a cycle of ups and downs of both uh, production of the vineyards, which leads to um, a you know you have a a uh, kind of starts where you have high prices. So that leads to people remove uh, vineyards; they don't harvest as much, or whatever. The price goes down. So then suddenly, you know, consumption maybe keeps going because you have more people. So then there is an issue where people, you know, want more grapes and so they plant more. And then it re- leads into a plant where it goes to oversupply. And then you have an issue where uh, you end up having too much and then the prices crash. And it goes round and round and round again. And this this wheel has proven out for um you know the past 70 80 years you can you can see this happening over and over and over again and we just have gone through the period of um being in excess and now we're swinging back around to the time of shortage so yeah very, that makes totally makes very sense. interesting wow I'm sorry, Shay has a question. It says, uh, oh, this person is teaching that this is a Shemitah year 2021. I thought she was fairly on board following the lead of the Jewish rabbis. The rabbis keep the Shemitah base of the count from the Hezekiah onward because that would be 2023, right? So, oh yeah, so this, this, this is a, 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 a dispute amongst uh, historical records versus rabbinical opinion on this one. So your question here regarding the Shemitah cycles here, uh, the Shemitah cycles that uh, that I guess you call the Western world observes, not rabbinical observation, is pretty consistent. They're matching the 1867, 80, 67, the whole way through from 80, 67 onward. Um, the rabbinical cycle on Shemitah cycles, they have a harder time. And the reason is it has to do with a Jubilee counting opinion difference. Is that some rabbis have argued the Jubilees count the 50th year as its own year and in some instances they are some argue that it should be counted as the same as the first year of the next cycle so that will every 50 years you will your shemitah cycles will shift 
one year. Um, if the 50 and the first are the same versus 50 and the first being different. So in the Torah's plain reading, you would read 50 and first being different. But in a rabbinical viewpoint, they say, well, it may or may not be. So they flipped a coin, essentially, and decided by word of vote, they want the 50th year to be the same as the first or separate from the first. Does that make sense? And so every year they have a shift. So if you read it plainly, you get one result. If you read it as not quite plainly, you get a different result. So you were you were correct to point out that the, the, the current um, <laughs> let me get some stuff that <laughs> the current way of reading it is 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 they view the fifty and the first as uh, as 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 the same year. Uh, so after the jubilee cycle, 50, uh, year fifty, the jubilee cycle is also year one of the shemitah cycle, which means during those time periods you only have a. A, a five-year span of, of, of assembly versus 50 being independent. When it's independent, you have the correlating match as far as from 8067, which all of our say is, or was a Shemitah cycle, till all the way to 1967. They all match re- consistently with the 50-year span, therefore a Shemitah cycle is 50. So that proof, as far as history proves, history demonstrated that the 50-year and one year are not the same year. They're in fact different years. And so they, they counted that way, and you result in, in, in the next, which is not going to be 2023. If you did the other direction, you'd have a totally different result or end result. That makes sense? And it's confusing, and I'm not going to say that you should obey one or the other. Say the Western, Western mostly Messianic observant, but also a few Jewish groups, uh, non-Messianic, are obeying the Shemitah cycle in uh, not the rabbinic Shemitah cycle, actually obeying their own count, the correct with which the plain reading of the Torah says, versus the more complicated. I say Jewish groups, the only ones that are doing the Jewish groups that I know about are the, uh, are the um, what you call that? Well, Hidden Hemi Gordon is. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head. Karyans. Uh, was that? Karyan. Yeah. So, so, so they're, they're doing so. But in the rabbinic cycle, they, they have the 15 one shoved together, uh, which is just how they chose to count it. Make sense? Okay. We're totally beyond over time. I'm surprised it's still even recording. <laughs> we should probably conclude this. All right, guys. <laughs> Let's close the prayer. Almighty God, our Father, we ask blessing on the rest of our day together, Father, the, the time that is left. We thank you for being wise and helping us along our way and our instructions. We try our best, Father, to do what's right in your eyes. May your, may your kindness be upon us, upon those, upon those whom we love and who we care for. May you bless our families and bless our loved ones with healing and love and kindness and, and most importantly, Father, with forgiveness and life. We ask you to bless us the rest of our time, Father, and we glorify you in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halel.info. Halel.info.